Welcome to the Sand Hills Podcast. My name is Pastor John. I'm joined today by Dr. Naylor and Dr. Noonan uh, from CIU. We're going to have a wonderful conversation on the resurrection. When we're recording this, we're in the midst of the Holy Week right now. Uh, Good Friday will be tomorrow, but this will be coming out on the Tuesday. So this will be cool to be able to listen to and to watch and to be thinking of as you guys have gone through Easter Sunday. You'll have uh, a better perspective with this on what are the impacts of the resurrection? What do we see in it in the Old Testament? What do we see in it in the New Testament? And what do we have to look forward to? So this will be a great conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Let's dive into it. Uh, let's start with you, Dr. Naylor. You're going to give us a brief uh, introduction? Yeah. Yeah. Well, my name is Mike Naylor, and I teach uh, New Testament at Columbia International University. Um, just give a little bit of, about my, my background that way. Um, originally from Iowa, and I uh, came to faith uh, when I was... Uh, relatively young, a neighbor invited me to attend a Awana program to kids ministry and uh, heard the gospel. Um, it's kind of my, my early discipleship and exposure to um, the Christian faith. And um, as I, I got further on and uh, into high school, began to think about serving in Christian ministry and didn't really know what that would entail. And I ended up um, going to Moody Bible Institute for my mm-hmm. undergrad degree. And uh, just kind of on a whim, I had somebody say, you should take Greek next year. And I said, okay. And so... <laughs> Um, I ended up taking Greek. I fell in love with um, with uh, Greek and New Testament studies. Um, ended up going to seminary at uh, Trinity in uh, Chicago, and then kind of headed down that path. Um, had opportunity to study in um, Edinburgh, Scotland, and that's uh, where I worked on my PhD program, uh, focusing on John's depiction of Jesus and Revelation. Wow, that is awesome, Dr. Noonan. So I grew up in Wisconsin, which is the land of cheese and uh, Green Bay Packers, um, and uh, also came to faith at a pretty early age. I grew up in a Christian family, uh, and so we always went to church together, prayed together, that kind of thing. Um, And yeah, I came to faith at a pretty early age, Uh, but there came a time in my life when I had to uh, make it my own. And so I went through this really tough period when I was in uh, junior high, high school, and uh, became really angry with God. Um, never stopped believing in him, but um, you know, became pretty angry with him. But God used that uh, to bring me to my breaking point and and essentially show me I was trying to do it on my own, and and that just didn't work. I couldn't do that. So uh, God used that to set me on the path of uh, faith that I'm on now. And so I went off to college. I went to Wheaton College um, near Chicago, and uh, believe it or not, I actually studied uh, physics <laughs> for my <laughs> undergrad degree. Um, but I took Greek and Hebrew at the same time because I, I just always wanted to be able to study the Bible in its original languages and uh, wow. fell in love with it and uh, decided I wanted to do Old Testament studies. And so that uh, brought me to Hebrew Union College, which is in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. It's a Jewish seminary. I mean, where where better to study the Old Testament than with the Jewish people? Hmm. Um, and now I'm at Columbia International University. And uh, I teach mostly for the grad level, but also have some undergrads and just love what I do because the Old Testament is really relevant for us as Christians. Hmm. I didn't know that you were both like at Chicago. Yeah, that was yeah, pretty yeah. interesting. Uh-huh. It was like you said, Chicago. I was like, wow, yeah. I should go to Chicago. This yeah, is, yeah. This is uh-huh. great. Uh-huh. Yeah, when actually, I, when I was going to uh, Trinity, I lived in uh, the western suburbs, not far from Wheaton. The church oh. we attended, and I was on staff there, was okay. about 10 minutes away from Wheaton. So okay. very often I would go over to use Wheaton's library because it was about um, well, 35 minutes or so closer than uh, Trinity's library wow. was. And they weren't working on the same assignments I was. So there's a chance. Yeah. I made a cross paths with you in the library. Might, might wow. have been, yeah. Who knows? <laughs> this is where I have to ask the Lord about that one. I'd be like, hey, did they ever, did they right. ever cross paths in Chicago? Right. That's amazing. Yeah. And uh, as you guys know who are watching or listening, um, I attended Columbia International University, and I had the pleasure of 
being taught by both of them uh, for different classes. Uh, but I'm just excited for this conversation because I've gotten to sit under both of your teaching and it's going to be a phenomenal conversation. So I'm excited for the listeners and the watchers uh, for what's in store. So we'll just dive into it now. Um, Dr. Naylor is uh, kind of our, our New Testament perspective, as you were probably taking from that with his focus on Greek and Revelation. And Dr. Noonan is our Old Testament perspective, um, as he studied with at Hebrew Union and then also uh, teaches Old Testament now and, and really focused on Hebrew. So our first question that we're going to dive into is, we live in a, a very special time where we have no question about who the Messiah is. You know, we know it's Jesus Christ. And we've gotten to see that. But there was a time when that wasn't the case. And the concept of Messiah was still very mysterious. So can you tell us a little bit about the significance of, of the timing and a little bit of the history of Messiah in, in the Old Testament perspective? Okay. Well, God has given us the Bible over, over time, right? It's been revealed progressively. And so uh, if you go throughout Bible history, you can see how he gives different pieces of information um, along the way, and we learn more about the Messiah in the process. Now, a lot of Christians have looked at Genesis 3.15, and they've taken that to be the, the passage where it's like the first promise, um, prophecy, I guess you mm. could say, about the Messiah. And Genesis 3.15 is given right after the fall. It's part of God's punishment of the, the serpent. And it reads, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, even though a lot of Christians have taken it as referring to the Messiah, it is a little mm. tricky because um, if you look at how the Old Testament at least alludes to this passage a little bit later um, in Isaiah 65, it seems to understand it in a, in a collective sense. And so mm. there's also people who say that, well, this isn't necessarily talking at least not exclusively, about a single individual Messiah. Maybe it's the people of God, and they're in this mm. uh, continual struggle against, uh, against Satan and, and his forces. Um, and the New Testament in uh, the book of Romans, uh, Romans 16, maybe does something similar, although Paul may take it a little bit more messianically. Mm. Um, that said, even though it's a little bit difficult, and we do see that trend, uh, I think that if we see Jesus as representative of, of humanity and especially trying to make connections that the, the Bible, the Old Testament itself makes for us in terms of the, the seed, the offspring, mm. um, and how that's connected with God's promises, um, specifically that he gives to Abraham, like blessing the nations, that kind of thing. I think looking back, uh, Genesis 3.15 maybe becomes a little bit more clear and we can mm. see it a little bit better as far as ref, uh, potentially referring to the Messiah. And, and the timing of that's significant because, again, you think about Genesis 3.15 given to Adam and Eve. Um, this is right in the aftermath of the fall. They have some hope absolutely, uh, in the midst of the entrance of sin and death into the world. Wow. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a fascinating thing because even if, um, you know, we kind of talk about, you know, it, is that Jesus? And it seems kind of like it might be kind of a yes and no, mm -hmm. where it's you can't have the people of God throughout salvation history without Jesus, right? But it's also, so it's kind of the plural and the singular working together, it seems. Right. right. Um, and that beautiful connection of there is hope. Mm -hmm. and, and that's wonderful that even the Old Testament, the Messiah was going to be a symbol of hope, uh, either bringing hope for his people or doing it himself. And, and that's wonderful. So how many prophecies of the Messiah were there in the Old Testament? Well, this is also kind of tricky to answer because it depends on how you uh, classify or categorize them, I guess you could say. Um, and so 
maybe some definitions would help here. So we can talk about like direct prophecies. Um, and those are prophecies that speak explicitly about the Messiah. So if you were to go back in time, talk to an ancient Israelite mm -hmm. and, and ask them, okay, what does this passage mean? They would say, oh yes, that talks about the Messiah. And a great passage like that, um, and this is a good one for us um, with Easter, we just had Palm Sunday, mm -hmm. would be Zechariah 9.9, uh, which says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we're, we're probably familiar with this passage. Right. Um, it seems pretty clear from the context in Zechariah that this is referring to some kind of messianic king, a, a mm. Davidic king, uh, entering Jerusalem. And so if you would have asked a Jew of um, in, in ancient Israel, okay, what does this mean? They probably would have identified it as the Messiah. And that's exactly what the, the New Testament does with it. Um, but then we also have passages that uh, exhibit what we call typology. Mm. And so typology has to do with if you've got like an event, a person, um, maybe even an institution that uh, anticipates the Messiah or anticipates something in some way, but you can't necessarily see it at the time. And so another good example, and with, with Easter coming up, is uh, Passover. Mm. The Israelites were told to celebrate Passover. They take the, the blood of a lamb and they put it on their doorposts and that is what God uses to ransom his people from uh, from the angel of death. Right. Now, there's no specific mention of the Messiah there. Uh, you know, he's not explicitly referred to or anything like that. But when you take a look at Jesus in the New Testament, and you take a look at how um, he's even uh, connected with Passover in various ways, uh, looking back, we can see, okay, well, yeah, there's some connections here, and the Passover mm. anticipates Jesus. And so we've got different types of, of uh, prophecy, different types of ways that the Old Testament looks forward to the Messiah. And, and I guess all that is to say is that it's, it's difficult to pinpoint a number because it depends on how people, people classify that. You know, I, I found some people who said, okay, maybe if you include everything, it's like 125. If it's just direct prophecies, it's 65. Um, I'm not as keen on trying to find specific numbers but what I do think we see is that when you take it all into consideration is that you've got uh, very clearly what Jesus says in Luke 24 when he's talking to the, the two guys on the road to Emmaus. And he says that essentially all of Scripture points to me, you know, script, Scripture mm. points to me. And so there's a variety of ways, but, but that, much, that much is clear, that it does look forward to him. It anticipates the Messiah. Wow. And so we have, because that's something that you hear a lot is kind of the numbers of, you know, this the direct ones, these ones that were fulfilled. Uh, about how many haven't been fulfilled? And, and Dr. Naylor, I think you can kind of speak to this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, part of part of the issue with, with that, and I, I really appreciate the, this kind of perspective on the, uh, the prophecies within the Old Testament, because sometimes I think we have this kind of idea, here is a job description, here are the 15, 65, 125 points mm. that we're looking for and then okay how many of them can we check off now how many of them are we still waiting um that way mm -hmm. um you know the review is still yet to come for the right. uh, <laughs> that way um and i think the the kind of thing we see in luke 24 even as we look at the the gospel writers as they they look more broadly that um although in certain cases you'll see this um and this was fulfilled and this was fulfilled um they don't run through a checklist in the, in the Gospels. They walk right. through and this kind of description of who Jesus is, how he's accomplished this, and um, make a lot of uh, broader thematic connections. Mm. Um, and so when we look at at, um, at prophecies that are, are yet to be fulfilled, 
there are things, I think, as we look at uh, the New Testament that are clearly still anticipated um, mm. as we think about the final culmination of um, of Christ's work in the new heavens and new earth. Right. Um, and so it kind of ties in a little bit with my area of specialization with Revelation, but uh, that kind of idea that, that his death and resurrection enacted um, this plan and it will be fully accomplished in the future. And so it's not necessarily, I think, as much of a, here's a list, these are, are checked off, these aren't yet, but all of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment that way in Christ. Um, mm. the, the law points to him, the prophets point to him. Um, he is uh, here the, the focal point of God's redemptive work. And because of what he has already accomplished, the rest that's still to come um, it has been secured already in Christ. And so there is that kind of future-looking hope, that future-looking anticipation, um, and in some cases to that eternal state of the new heavens and new earth. Uh, but all of that finds its fulfillment in Christ. Mm. That's so beautiful. You see from the beginning of time that this has been the focus is the fulfillment of Christ. Um, and seeing that sometimes vaguely in the new, and I love that idea was when you were talking about the Passover lamb and you see Christ is referred to as the lamb of God and, and you see his sacrifice and his blood saving us. Um, and then all this, it's just so incredible. I just think about, it. I just get blown away by the, the majesty of it and, and by Christ's redemptive power. And so what would have been the importance of these prophecies being fulfilled? So if you're walking the streets of Jerusalem and you're, you're hearing about this man that's, you know, raising people from the dead, all of a sudden making the blind see, and you're starting to connect these dots and you had the triumphant entry, you know, and they're, you know, shouting Hosanna. What, what were they seeing fulfilled in those prophecies at that time? So I, I think there's a, a few different uh, angles that you could take with this, but one of the reasons why it's important for these prophecies to be fulfilled is is that um, the Messiah is the one who who writes what went wrong um, in the Garden of Eden. Mm. We were talking before about uh, the fall, and that brings uh, sin and death into this world. And uh, without the Messiah, that can't be undone. He's the only one who can set humanity free from sin. He's the only one who can uh, defeat death. He's the only one who can establish God's rule on earth as it was intended to be from the beginning. And so... Um, each prophecy as it's fulfilled, each of these things uh, gets at a different aspect of, of restoring creation, of restoring mm. things to the way that they were supposed to be. And so uh, that's, that's the hope that people have. And so when they see these kinds of fulfillment, this is, this is an exciting thing because we see that right. God is making his world right again. Mm. And so for, as you're familiar with the, the Easter message and we look at uh, what an incredibly entry and people shouting Hosanna and, and giving Jesus the proper response that he should have. Mm -hmm. And then now, you know, 2000 something years ago, we're looking at him being betrayed and going on trial and being brutally executed. How did that go so wrong so fast? What were the expectations of the people in Jerusalem to go from shouting Hosanna to then go to, you know, crucify him, crucify him? What wasn't being met in their eyes and why was that a part of the story? Well, again, you could kind of look at this from a, a few different angles. I think one of the one of the things, and maybe Dr. Naylor can speak to this a little bit too, but um, just the the Jewish leaders are not always really happy with Jesus for various mm. reasons because Jesus is popular. Jesus calls him out for sin. Um, they don't like that. They're also worried about uh, being perceived as uh, setting up their own king, which is going to be a threat to Roman rule. So, mm. so that that obviously complicates things and, right. and you know, they don't want it. They don't want to get into the troubles that that could cause. 
Um, but another aspect of this, I think, is that uh, the the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, it's almost like putting together the, the pieces of a puzzle. Mm. And when, when you're doing that, like when you're putting together the pieces of a puzzle, you, you, you can't always tell what it's going to look like. Right. Um, you see something here, you see something there, um, but you don't get the full picture until you get to the very end and the puzzle's all together and all the pieces are together. Right. And so when you try to put together the pieces of the puzzle um, regarding the Messiah, I mean, that, that's really more what it is. It's not like this systematic textbook where it goes through right. and, and lists things. And so there's a lot of pieces that have to do with the Messianic kingdom mm. as far as, okay, we're going to have a, a descendant of David and he's going to usher in God's kingdom and this is going to bring about the restoration of Israel. That's that's an important piece of the puzzle and, and many, many pieces. Um, but the Jews tended to focus on that. That was the big piece for them. Right, mm. right. Yeah, they, they were looking to that and they kind of missed that there are maybe some other pieces of the puzzle. And they're not always as, as clear or maybe as prominent, but we have things like Isaiah 53 that talks about the suffering of, of God's servant. Mm. Um, but they tended not to focus on that. And so um, that's why you, know, you can look at the New Testament and you can see how some of the disciples, uh, when Jesus tells them that he has to go to Jerusalem and that he has to suffer, they, they don't they get confused. Yeah, yeah, they get confused. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> right, because they, they they're they're not looking at that piece of the puzzle. They're they're only seeing this thing over here and kind of missing that aspect there. Yeah, and I think even like looking at with with the disciples, if we look at Mark's gospel, for example, that's well known for um, what some refer to as this messianic secret, where hmm. Jesus does these sorts of things and then he tells them, "Don't tell anybody." Right. Um, which seems to be a feature that Mark is um, is highlighting as Jesus predicts what will come. Mm. This path is going to lead to the cross, lead to suffering and death. And all along the way, you have disciples, you have crowds, you have religious leaders that each want to define Jesus in their own way um, of what it means to be Messiah. What does this vocation of being the Messiah entail? And Jesus is the one who is following through and determining that, that path. Mm. And so there's almost this kind of sense of, don't tell people that I'm the Christ lest they come to the wrong conclusion and think that this should lead this direction rather than the route that I'm on. And the direction that I'm leading in. And yeah. it's his, yeah. it's his salvation for the world, not what we think salvation should be. Yeah. And I think when we look at, um, you know, we look at the, the context of the time period, there's a whole lot of history that's happened in between right. the Old Testament and the, the New Testament as well. It kind of plays into that where um, the experiences of, um, of the people in facing some of the hostile foreign powers that were in charge of, of mm -hmm. uh, them, some of the challenges to the the uniqueness and distinctiveness of the Jewish faith, um, uh, concerns about the purity of the temple and mm -hmm. um, the offering of, of sacrifices that, um, well, I think we can look at certain passages in the Old Testament and say, well, they seem to be clearly messianic texts. And then we look at writings of the time period in the Apocrypha and Old Testament pseudepigrapha um, at kind of date in between the uh, end of the Old Testament and kind of the end of the first century AD, we can see these Jewish texts are quoting from the Old Testament and saying these are messianic texts, hmm. but yet there's not agreement on what these mean. Um, and so that's kind of thing I, I think as a, a, a sports fan, and I hope, I don't know, it's a good thing we're sitting a little bit distance away here. Um, I'm a Bears fan, and uh, so, <laughs> so I don't about know. That? Yeah, a little, little, little NFC North rivalry here, perhaps, um, with you being from Wisconsin. But, um, you know, Chicago Bears fans have been looking, have been looking, have been looking for a quarterback. And right. It's kind of like this longing, uh, you, know, of, you know, returning to the glory days and finding the, the quarterback that's going to be the one that's going to lead the team um, mm. you know, past those cursed Packers and uh, <laughs> um, on to playoff glory. Um, and... But yet, 
no one can really agree of what they're we're really looking for that way. Mm. Um, you know, a dynamic passer, a, a dynamic team leader, um, somebody who can you know run well with their feet, and, and it's the same right. kind of thing. I, I think with you know the experiences that, that the Jewish people were having of of there's just not this clarity of what are we looking for? What are we? Mm. Um, is it a is it a king? And that seems to be a prominent theme. But then you have others that are looking for someone to purify the temple, and mm. maybe even two possibly different different figures. And so yeah. It wasn't necessarily that um, that the people had a had a, a clear and distinctive um, you know kind of list or picture of what that looks like, but um, some of those different kinds of perceptions that even the disciples don't fully get Understand. until yeah. you know really I think looking back after Easter and saying wow, oh this is it there there it was <laughs> yes <laughs> right. now we understand so mm-hmm. wow and so what was the what was people were waiting for this and when we talk about kind of that period. Uh, of history going on uh, between the the people being exiled out of their own land and then 400 years of silence where they don't hear anything from God, there's no prophet from God uh, before Jesus comes on the scene. How is that time kind of building up to the anticipation? And, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm thinking there's, there's someone's, um, kind of you know how on a coin you have Abraham Lincoln's face on the penny, right? Wasn't there something in the temple that was one of the lead, one of the leader's faces? He had been like the prophet, the priest, or the king, and they were saying, "Oh, we're looking for someone like that," and they were kind of wanting to fit Jesus into this perspective. And remembered something like that being in there, where it was he was a very large figure in um, the Maccabees. He was one of the Maccabee brothers, I think, and he had been leading revolts, and and he had gotten their freedom for them yeah yeah you certainly have the the maccabees who are um dealing with the uh you know the the greeks and greek mm-hmm. influence um and and trying to establish political independence uh, right. for the jewish people and and that's a big deal for them uh that that's at least one thing that i guess you could say contributes to this um this expectation as somebody who's gonna uh, who's gonna come about and uh reestablish Israel's political independence, you know, they're, they're kind of hoping for that. And they're statehood. looking back to David, David right. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so with that perspective, they look at it and they see that there's um, a spiritual aspect of it, that there is a kingly aspect to it. Um, how were people supposed to be getting ready for the Messiah? Well, what, what were things that people were supposed to be doing to get ready? Because it seems like they, they saw part of it, like we were talking about, they saw it in part mm-hmm. and wanted to accept him. Um, but then when all their expectations weren't met, you know, there was the brutal rejection of him. But what were some of the things that they would have been growing up hearing about in, in Jewish culture and, and literature and things like that? So one of the things that the, the Jewish people are told to, to look for, and this is talked about at the end of the, the book of Malachi, is they're told to watch for this, this messenger, this messenger that God is going to send that's going to be like another Elijah the prophet, mm-hmm. and he's going come to before, come before the Messiah. Um, and aside from that, we only have kind of some general mentions in the Old Testament about, okay, you're supposed to be ready, get ready, prepare the way of the Lord, mm. uh, like Isaiah 40, uh, you know, uh, make, make ready for the way of the Lord, that kind of idea. But you do have a little bit at the end of the book of Malachi, and in addition to mentioning this, this messenger that's going to come before the Messiah, it's, what's interesting is that it mentions uh, the law. It, it's, uh, it says, mm. remember the law of Moses. And so I think part of the idea here is that uh, you know, God's coming, 
and he's going to establish his, his kingdom on earth. It's going to be a kingdom of righteousness and justice. Um, so you need to know what righteousness and justice are so that you can be a part of this kingdom. You, you need to be ready in, in your hearts as well. Mm. Um, and so uh, it, it's this idea of knowing the law, because that's where you learn what this righteousness and justice is, and that's right. how you get right with God. And that's essentially what John the Baptist does in the New Testament, right? I mean, he's he's that messenger. Right. He's like Elijah the prophet um, that shows up before before Jesus, before the Messiah, and he calls people to repent because the kingdom of God is is coming. So right. that's that's one of the main ways I think that they would be getting ready uh, for the Messiah to come. That's what I think. as you said that, and you said you know that the, one of the things was to to remember the law. I couldn't help but think of all the times that Jesus completely fulfilled the law, but the Pharisees were saying, you're breaking the law. Mm-hmm. But if they had known the law, that was the, the law from Deuteronomy that had been given to them by Moses, instead of the law that they were wanting it to be and that they had created for their own power, they would have recognized who Jesus was faster. Mm-hmm. And the fulfillment, I mean, so many things could have been avoided if they had obeyed the law and not added to it um, mm-hmm. or things like that. And then I'm also was reminded as you're talking about, there's kind of an ambiguity there of, you know, be ready. Uh, he could come at any time. You know, the Messiah could come at any time. And that plays perfectly into our our ideas of the second coming. Anytime. We don't have a real clear picture of when it's going to happen. We just know it's going to happen, that we should be preparing the way for him. And so that seems to be a way that we can maybe understand that Old Testament concept a little bit more, is that we're in a similar type of situation where we're eagerly awaiting the return, uh, where they were eagerly awaiting the coming. Uh, for the first time. And I think when you look at some of the, the texts, um, or some of the non-canonical texts from the, the intertestamental period, that you see that kind of kind of concern of the um, the experience coming out of, of the exile in, in um, Babylon and then under the Medo-Persians of that. We've violated the law of God. We have mm. worshipped these other gods. And, and there's actually some beautiful prayers of repentance um, in some of these Jewish texts of this corporate repentance and, and this longing for God's restoration and I think um, as we look at the Gospels, that there there is some of the missing uh, here with the law and its interpretation, its application. But I think there's also kind of that experience of coming out of that um, of the exile and wanting to remain faithful to God. That mm. we've we've learned from the mistakes, right? But yet, um, in some texts, we see this kind of um, plea for God's mercy, His grace, His restoration. This kind of this kind of heart. But then there's there can also be this kind of we're gonna hold fast to these sorts of things uh, that way lest this happen to us. We, again. we don't want to mess up again. Yeah, don't so get I, kicked out twice. Yeah. yeah, and then you have someone like Jesus coming along, challenging some of these interpretations of mm. what it means to be faithful to Sabbath, what it means to um, uh, here in terms of purity laws and dining with with um, with those that would be considered uh, ritually impure, less you know, less desirable right. in that, and you can understand why f- mm-hmm. uh, for some that want to and are very concerned about that, the the role of the law, the the application of the law, the effects mm-hmm. of not doing so, why there could be that kind of reaction. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the the things that I think is fascinating is we see that sacrifice has always been a part of the law. It's always been a needed requirement and. Um, I remember one of the things that kind of blew my mind when I first showed up to CIU as a freshman was the question of what was the first death in the Bible? And I think of Cain and Abel, right? But in reality, it was uh, the animal that had to die to clothe Adam and Eve, that there's always been some, some animal's death to try and cover sin and, and to make up for it. And you go into the law and you have the sacrifice 
of the animals, um, the firstborn, and they, they don't have any defects, and they, this covers the people's sin, and death is a necessary part of the restoration of the community. But you never see any of those lambs or calves resurrected. So why does Jesus need to be both sacrificed, but then also resurrected? And, and are there Old Testament perspectives that give us light on that? Or what are the New Testament perspectives that resurrection is a new thing uh, for the sacrifice? If you guys could talk about that for a little bit. I think when it comes to um, the Old Testament, at least, it's not so much specific passages. I mean, you have some some passages like Isaiah 53, which, which talks about uh, the suffering servant, the mm -hmm. Messiah, who's, who's going to offer his soul, um, and that's going to um, be an offering on behalf of the people, and it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to benefit them. So you certainly have things like that, but it doesn't tell you that the need necessarily um, for the Messiah to, to come back to life, to be resurrected. Right. Um, so there aren't really passages that speak to the need. I think it's more the general plot line where you see that um, Adam and Eve sin, they bring sin and death into this world, mm -hmm. and that everybody after them does the exact same thing. Even even the best of the, the people in the Old Testament that we often call like heroes of the faith, Abraham, right. Moses, David, well, they're, they're far from perfect. Right. And so this... Very flawed. Oh, yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. Very flawed. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> We, we tend to gloss over some of those flaws sometimes, right. unfortunately, but, um, but it shows us the sinfulness um, of, of humanity mm -hmm. and that we can't break apart from that um, on our own. And so we have this expectation that somebody finally is going to come along uh, and, and do things right, uh, mm. not going to disobey like Adam did. Somebody who's going to bless the nations like Abraham and his descendants were. Somebody who's going to be that just and righteous king. And so we're set up with this expectation, and and I think part of it it too is not just um, all, all those expectations, but associated with that is, uh, you know, because Adam and Eve brought death into this world, the Messiah also needs to conquer conquer death, and mm. the way to do that is yeah. is through resurrection. And we we maybe have a picture of this because um, the restoration that's supposed to come about with the messianic kingdom. Uh, the, the imagery that's used in a few places in the prophets, like Ezekiel uh, 37, it talks about the dry bones coming to life. Right. Well, that's the restoration of Israel, um, but it's using the image of, restor uh, of resurrection. Hmm. And so we do see, I guess, these uh, connections between the image of resurrection and the restoration of Israel. It's, but it's, it, it's, it's more than just the political restoration. It also entails restoration from sin and restoration from death. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah, and I think, and, and this may, it's a good point to, to mention this as well. I think sometimes there's the idea that, well, we just need Jesus and just focus on Jesus in the mm -hmm. New Testament. But I think when you see the bigger picture, and uh, yes, as a New Testament guy, I'm going to admit this uh, here publicly, we need the Old Testament. Right. <laughs> good <laughs> so, <to hear. laughs> yeah. Um, and sometimes there's that kind of idea, well, if we just start with Jesus and finish with Jesus, that's what we need. But mm. when we see the bigger picture of um hear the entire storyline of God's redemptive work and it's not as though you know one thing happens we're going to try this and God tries this first plan and then we'll try a second plan right. and then eventually okay we'll work things out with Jesus but there's this um, narrative arc to all of scripture of God working out his plan of redemption which mm -hmm. involves different um, different things unfolding in different periods of time as it eventually culminates in Christ and so I think we, as we take a look at um, at this particular issue with the resurrection there's some of those thematic connections that mm. especially looking back we can I think see but then you see within the um, within the Gospels as well as in the Book of Acts the the way that the disciples 
even when the Gospels weren't necessarily anticipating, even though Jesus seems to give them some clear indication that right. they should be. Some hints. Yeah, but yet they're they're not expecting this. Mm. And there's there's this um, this kind of uh, amazement that he's risen. Um, mm. And then when we come to the book of Acts, we look at, um, for example, Peter's um, sermon on the day of Pentecost. And the way I think that um, as the the New Testament authors, the apostles were trying to, to think through how does this all fit together, that um, we see, for example, in, um, in Acts chapter 2, um, Peter pulling together a couple of different um, texts um, from Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, and um, a couple of passages that, when read together, help to make sense, I think, of what's anticipated, that you have, on the one hand, a Davidic um, descendant who has this reigning forever, exalted mm. to the right hand of God. Right. But then you have also these kinds of themes within um, within uh, the Old Testament, like in Isaiah 53, of one who's suffering and dying. So how do you take those two together? And um, I think as we look at Peter's um, sermon, look at Paul a little bit later on in the book of Acts in one of his, his sermons, that um, there's this identification as we look at, for example, Psalm 16, um, and this kind of language in... Um, uh, verses uh, 9 and following, Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, let your Holy One see corruption. Um, and uh, Peter quotes that in, well, David, you know, he was he died and he was buried, his tomb's with us to this day, right. um, but yet that's anticipating. Um, and in the bigger picture, Psalm 110 of great David's greater son, the one that comes, mm. this exalted to the right hand, there's a way I think is these the New Testament authors realized we're reading these texts together, we see the bigger picture that emerges. That's I like the idea of the puzzle that as you see those pieces together, you say, well, how does that come together and make sense? Mm. Um, and I think that's that's how it does. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great illustration because I remember um, Claire and I were making a, a puzzle over Christmas, and I could have sworn this one piece was supposed to fit in one spot. And I was like jamming the thing in there. And I was like, it's going to fit. This is where it's supposed to go. They messed up making the board. I'm not the problem here. Uh, I was wrong. That was not where the piece was supposed to go. It was supposed to go on the other side of the board. Uh, but it seems like when you're doing that and the puzzle starts to almost start making itself mm -hmm. as those things work out. And, and they're getting that perspective as they're looking at the text. And it starts, oh, oh, this is making sense. And things are starting to come together, whereas beforehand and before the resurrection and those pieces starting to fit together naturally there was that expectation of okay well he's going to be a political messiah and we're going to try and fit jesus into this piece and we're going to triumphal entry into jerusalem because he's he's kicking the heels off the romans and we're going to be an independent nation and that was the part they were really focused on but that wasn't what jesus was there to do uh, at that time and so I absolutely love that illustration of the, the puzzle piece is perfect because it's starting to make sense with the resurrection. You start to realize, oh, he needed to die. He was fully human. So death is possible. But in order for him to live forever, he's got to be resurrected and conquer death and be seated at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus, the resurrection solves all those things that would have been very difficult to comprehend before it happening. Uh, and so what, what were some of the misconceptions about the resurrection that maybe Christians had then, or maybe people in the Greco-Roman Empire had had um, had misconceptions about what the resurrection was, or maybe what people still have even today. 
Yeah, well, there I think are kind of a number of different areas. Um, you know, some that raise kind of concerns about, well, is this even a historical event? Um, you know, mm. Did Jesus actually raise from the dead? And so right. you have different kinds of theories out there that the disciples stole the body or that Jesus just simply, um, he didn't die on the cross. He kind of swooned. Um, swoon mm. theory is what that's known as, that um, that he uh, just was incapacitated to a you know, to a point placed in the the cold tomb and then revived then just kind of naturally because of it was the, like oof oh glad that's over yeah <laughs> and uh, that he didn't actually fully die right. um, that way just kind of revived mm-hmm. um you know someone looking at the accounts in the gospels and say well really they're not really historical accounts but they're just they're kind of symbols of hope and it's a you know it's a good story to talk about mm-hmm. you know new life or something like that emerging um others that look at that and say um well and, and some of this is a misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians 15, but to say that Jesus um, rose spiritually. So it doesn't actually his body, but his spirit Just that arose. spirit arose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, as we take a look at uh, the gospel writers, they, um, they each in their own way point to the reality that Jesus died. Um, and the Romans... A real was, physical death. It was a real physical death. And the Romans, this was not something new, <laughs> that uh, <laughs> this, this kind of uh, method of execution had been practiced. Um, they were experienced in that. There are ways that they were telling whether or not the, a person had actually died. It was their job to guarantee that they had. Or uh, they get in trouble. Exactly. Because yeah. then a criminal is still alive. Yeah. Right. And they've yeah, permitted that to take place. And so, um, and all, all the gospel writers present that Jesus truly died. Mm-hmm. And then as we see in the um, resurrection accounts and the encounters with the risen Christ or Paul in his discussion over in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, that um, he truly rose, um, mm-hmm. that he, it was a bodily resurrection. Um, and, and so some of those different kinds of theories, there's a lot of arguments against some of those, those misconceptions. Um, but it is something that is both um, presented in Scripture as a historical reality, but also something with great importance for us as well. It's not just simply the, um, here's what happened after the fact, um, right. but um, a, a central foundational event within the Christian faith. And how does that impact us today? How does it, how does it change how Christians 2,000 years later should, should be living? Yeah, well, in a couple of different ways, I think. And, there's, um, and the New Testament um, really deals with, it, I think, a couple of different um, couple of different aspects. One, um, in terms of the um, uh, validating the identity of Jesus as Messiah, mm-hmm. that it, this is that God raised him from the dead. Um, God exalted him then to the right hand. And so identifying truly who Jesus is, and in some cases we see the resurrection uh, discussed in that sort of way. Um, we see um, for the, the believer present aspects of it, that there's the work of the spirit, um, the spirit that... Um, that uh, raised him from the dead is the same spirit who works in us, producing new life now. And that he sent and gave to us because he had to, he was being exalted and he's being resurrected and going up. So he's going to send the Holy Spirit to comfort us. Yeah, exactly. So that uh, that spirit um, is continuing that same work in, mm. in us, producing new life. But then as we look to the future as well, that there's great great hope for the future, that right. we likewise will be changed to be like Christ and, and have that, um, that future hope. So... It, um, it, it, so in each of those different ways, um, the resurrection really is, is important. But even as we look at a couple of other expressions within uh, the book of Romans, um, that Paul links uh, here the, um, the resurrection with, uh, with faith and our justification. And mm-hmm. at the end of chapter 4, um, that in discussing the account of Abraham and God crediting righteousness on the basis of Abraham's faith, he makes the, the connection here at the end that that same thing is said to us, that it's counted to us, this righteousness, um, who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
Mm. Um, and in links very explicitly our salvation to the fact that he is raised. A little bit later on in uh, Romans chapter 10, um, he likewise expresses the, the nature of, of faith and, and identifying, as he says, uh, if I can get down here to the spot, there we go, in identifying that Jesus is the Lord, um, recognizing truly his identity and calling upon his name, um, and it's really a statement affirming Jesus' divine identity, and then um, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, mm. that, that he ties um, here that proper recognition to both Jesus' identity and his resurrection. And how that, and I remember Paul saying, you know, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then we have nothing. The faith is nothing without the resurrection. There, the resurrection has to be a real event, uh, and it impacts us today because, I mean, I just think how beautiful that is, the idea that uh, God the Father has um, his son Jesus and is fully God, fully man, sacrifice was the perfect sacrifice but then overcomes death and then the resurrection is absolutely necessary in order for the holy spirit to come which then comforts and encourages us and motivates us and empowers us today as christians to then advance the kingdom eagerly awaiting his return and it's beautiful to see like we we're talking about the thematic story that that goes all the way through scripture that a lot of those old testament ideas and perspectives of how to prepare the way and how to live in light of the messiah and how to prepare the kingdom that now we're still doing that today and we're still preparing the way and we're still building the kingdom and it's his kingdom. We get to take part in it and we're eagerly awaiting uh, of the return. It's just absolutely, it just gets me so excited. It's amazing. Um, so, and, and that's kind of, we talked a little bit about how we're instructed now to pre prepare the way of the Lord. Um, we had talked a little bit about how the Jewish people were instructed a little bit, how they should, what they should have been looking out for. And so now what are the things for us, you know, especially in terms of revelation of the second coming, um, what does Revelation say about the resurrection and what does Revelation say about how we prepare the way uh, for our Messiah to come again? Yeah, well, looking at, um, at Revelation, the, it, it's a theme that really is introduced right from the outset of the book that um, John in his um, introduction to the book, um, as he writes to these seven churches um, in kind of Western modern day Turkey, mm -hmm. um, that he sends us green grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne from jesus christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead the ruler of the kings on earth mm. and that uh, description um and, and really with each of those <laughs> here the faithful witness firstborn of the dead the ruler of the kings on earth you can trace each of those thematically through the book of revelation in, in mm. um, describing jesus role as one who bears witness to god's saving work and we likewise follow in his in his stead as those who bear witness to him mm. um, the uh, firstborn of the dead and ultimately looking forward then to uh, the final resurrection the ruler of the kings on earth that he is the true king of kings and lord of lords and all three of those phrases actually um, come out of psalm 89 um, as an mm. allusion there to um, a psalm that's connected with David and, and, um, and the, God's promises to David, and Jesus now is the one who has fulfilled that. And uh, the firstborn of the dead kind of has that idea of preeminence over, um, that he is the one who rules over um, here uh, the, the resurrection. Um, he's the one that brings that about. And through the rest of the book, you have kind of these themes of, of, um, of life and death. And as we move to chapter 2, um, we see these different congregations address more directly. And mm -hmm. in, uh, in chapter two, in uh, the message to the church at Smyrna, um, here the, uh, uh, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And as he addresses this um, congregation, it seems to be one that's facing tribulation and, mm -hmm. and hardship, persecution, 
um, that he is the one who died and came to life. And so even for them as they face that kind of challenge, that has an impact on how they they continue to live in, in faithfulness to Christ. Right. And that thing continues through the book as, um, as we have the description of, you know, ultimately in, in chapters 12 and 13 and beyond with the, the dragon, the beast from the sea, the beast from the land, and the kind of power and authority that they have um, seeming you know, to choose who lives and who dies. Right. Followers of the Lamb get put to death, but yet in the end as we come to um, chapters 19 and 20 that we see that they're the ones that are raised. God mm. vindicates them. Mm-hmm. He he raises them. We have that description of um, of the, kind of the two stages of this resurrection in chapter 20 of of um, God's raising of those that have been put to death, that they um, are followed faithfully after God, mm. they're vindicated, they reign with Christ, and then we see later the, the general resurrection of, of the rest. Um, and then ultimately, as we look at the, the new heavens and new earth, that we see that um, Christ through his death and resurrection is the one who's brought that about. Mm. And now as people dwell with him eternally, death is no more, the curse is no more. And we return to some of these grand themes at the beginning, um, really of all of scripture in Genesis right. one and two of what was lost in Eden is now restored and even more abundantly. Wow. That is so exciting. <laughs> That's it incredible. Is. And I just love how it's all connected and it all goes back to each other. And there's, I feel like one of the misconceptions that people have sometimes is the idea that these are all separate books and that they're not related. But they're all related from from the very first one that's in in our collected Bible to the very last one. They're all connected. They're all working together. They're all teaching us how to prepare for that that glorious glorious day where we get to to be united with Christ. And and that's amazing. So as we kind of wrap up and and close out the podcast here, I was wondering. Um, we'll start with you, Doctor Noon. If you could say one thing, um, so maybe we're talking about. Um, maybe the Jewish community or the unbelieving community of, of who the Messiah is, or what's one thing that you would say to them kind of in light of uh, the historical Messiah and what we see Jesus do? I think I'd just reiterate some of the things that I've uh, said, just trying to tie it together as far mm-hmm. as um, the Messiah is the one in whom we have our hope. Um, we may look at the Old Testament and, and we read about um, this, this pattern of sin and, and disobedience and death, how Adam sins, we talked about how everybody else um, after him sins, doesn't follow God's plan perfectly. Right. That's not just in the Old Testament. I mean, mm-hmm. if we look around this world today, we see that uh, this world is broken and that we ourselves are, are, are sinful. And there's no way for us to get out of that except for by placing our hope in the Messiah. He's the only one who can take care of our sin, mm-hmm. who can redeem us from it. He's the only one who can defeat death. And uh, he's the only one who can restore creation to what it was originally intended to be. And I think the Old Testament and the, the whole Bible teaches that pretty clearly. Yeah, absolutely. And Dr. Naylor, what would you say? Um, if you could say one thing to everyone who's maybe doubting the historical resurrection or, or people who are unbelievers today that say, you know, there's no need uh, for me to have a Messiah, what would you say? Yeah, but I think there's, it's, as we take a look at the, the Gospels, um, that each of the gospel writers are, are inviting us um, and uh, through these different portraits that they um, that they have, have put together to try to describe um, who this Jesus is, to help mm-hmm. people to encounter him, to understand um, his character, his nature, um, his ministry um, that ultimately led to the cross and then to the empty tomb. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that um, you know, the same kind of thing is a lot of people have heard maybe about in some sort of general way of who Jesus is. Right. Um, they kind of have their you know, kind of perceptions of who he is. But um, yeah, I would just encourage people to actually you know, take time to read through um, 
uh, Gospel of Mark is not real long. Um, probably the first short. of the Gospels that yeah. way, pretty action-packed for those that, that are drawn to that kind of thing. But to read about and, and encounter mm-hmm. Christ as they um, reflect on the, the significance and look at, at major events and um, you know, teaching and actions of Jesus in the Gospels uh, that way. And I think there's something that, um, you know, as we look at, at the storyline of Scripture as well, that, that, that does correspond to reality, mm-hmm. that we recognize the brokenness within the world, but this is not a God who is somehow aloof from this or um, is just kind of reacting and making things up on the, on the fly, but a God who's engaged, who has um, had been working throughout history, making himself known, revealing himself um, through the prophets, through um, incredible things like um, you know, the Exodus, and mm. um, as we take a look at, you know, here chiefly through the coming of Christ, um, that this is his plan that is working out in history, and he invites us to be part of that, um, to respond to that. Well, and that always just, that was, as I was hearing that and thinking about it, it always makes me think of um, the end of Reading Rainbow, where he's like, don't just take my word for it, check it out at yourself <laughs> at your local library. And it's like, that's the truth. It's, you know, you can hear this podcast, you can listen to this podcast, um, but check it out for yourself, you know, read the text, encounter Christ. Um, if you're maybe unfamiliar with the stories, you can just dig into it. There's a great thing in Bible project. You can see great video illustrations of, uh, the stories, but definitely read the text for yourself, encounter Jesus. That's why the authors wrote it so that people who didn't get a chance to see him in person could encounter him in the text and hear about our wonderful savior. So thank you both so much for being on the show and for, for helping us understand these perspectives more. This has been a, a real joy. So thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank Absolutely. you. Well, that's our show for today. We appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, thank you so much for viewing. If you could like, subscribe, and share, that helps us so much. It lets us know that uh, you're out there, you're watching, you're listening, you're supporting. Send it to a friend and hey, happy Easter. And we would just encourage you again. Read the Gospels, encounter Jesus for yourself, because we can each testify that he's absolutely changed our lives in incredible ways, and he can change yours as well. Thanks, God bless, and have a great day.